they couldn't understand a black person, specifically a black person that in their mind looked so Tanzanian because they kept telling me, oh, my features were so Tanzanian, like my nose and my cheekbones and all. Like they were very specific and they told me exactly which tribe I came from and they showed me pictures. And I learned that there was this thing, especially in the larger cities like Dar es Salaam, that there were some younger people who were trying to pretend to be English. And so they would speak English and they wouldn't speak Swahili. And that was very frowned upon by the older generation. So they were wondering, was I one of those young people who didn't want to speak Swahili? And they had a hard time just explaining to them, I genuinely don't speak Swahili like that. I'm not African. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Flourish in the Foreign, the podcast that elevates and affirms the voices and stories of Black women living and thriving abroad. This podcast centers Black women and also explores living abroad as a pathway to wellness and wellness in all of its many forms, financial, professional, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual. Welcome to the show and welcome back if you are returning. Thank you so much. I am Christine Job, the host of Flourish in the Foreign and also a Black American expat living and thriving in Spain. I am not only the host, but also the creator, the producer, and just generally the everythinger of this here podcast. And as you may know, this podcast truly is a labor of love, but, you know, labor nonetheless. And that is why I'm asking you all to please support this here podcast. Now, there are five ways for you to support Flourish in the Foreign. The first way is to become a Patreon supporter of Flourish in the Foreign. Go to www.patreon.com slash Flourish Foreign. The second way for you to support this podcast is by Cash App. You can Cash App the podcast at dollar sign Flourish Foreign. And Cash App truly is like a tip jar. So if you're listening to an episode that really moves you, that really inspires or just helps you out, you can go ahead and slide the podcast a couple of bucks via Cash App. And it's also a really great way to contribute to the podcast if you're not ready to make an ongoing monthly commitment. So you can go ahead and cash out the podcast at dollar sign Flourish Foreign. The third way you can support Flourish in the Foreign is by placing an ad within this podcast or sponsoring an entire episode of Flourish in the Foreign. If you have an organization or business that's in alignment with this podcast and you would love to get in front of an incredible audience of ambitious educated, and internationally-minded women, go ahead to Flourish in the Foreign's website, www.flourishintheforeign.com slash contact, and drop me a line. I will send you over the rate sheet, and we can go from there. The fourth way you can support Flourish in the Foreign is, of course, sharing the podcast with the people that you love and the people that you know. Share the podcast with your audience. It is so important, and I always say it, and I'm going to keep on saying it. Your personal recommendation, your seal of approval, your this is what I'm listening to, this is what's cool, this is what's really moving me right now, is worth so much more than any marketing that I could do. So help a sister out, all right? And please continue to share the podcast. Of course, tag the podcast at Flourish Forward across all social media channels. The fifth way you can support Flourish in the Foreign is, of course, by subscribing to the podcast, giving the podcast five stars, leaving a review, and also following the podcast across all social media channels, again, at Flourish Foreign. I love 
love reading your reviews. They really make me so happy. (laughs) They really make me so, so happy. And so I'm going to read a review from G Edelman 15. Thank you, G Edelman 15. Relatable and inspiring. I love, love, love this. As someone who has grown up as an immigrant, there was so much to relate to and definitely inspiring to share my experiences and listen to more stories to find those connections. Really recommend. Thank you so much, G Edelman 15. That is such a wonderful review and I love it. And again, if you've been listening to this podcast for a minute or maybe it's your first time, please consider writing a review for the podcast. It's just such a warm fuzzy for me. I love it. It really, really makes my entire week. Okay, I just gave you all five different ways to support this podcast, and I hope you have chosen at least one way to support Flourish in the Foreign today. Okay, on to the next episode. This next story features Sophia, and her story, I think, is so very interesting. I mean, she has literally traveled around the world and has found her way back home. I think there's a lot to learn from her story, but I'm going to let her tell you all about it. My name is Sophia Robinson. I am 42 and I'm in Barbados. My hometown is Christchurch in Barbados. I was born in Curacao. Then I I was in Barbados probably within months after that. And then about a year after that, we moved to Canada. And I was in Canada until I was four or five. And then I moved back to Barbados. And then when I was 19, I moved to the UK. Growing up, I had a lot of family that lived abroad. So... In the 60s, there was a big migration out of the Caribbean, and people went to the U.S., they went to Canada, they went to the U.K. And so my dad was one of those people. He went to Canada with his brother, not at the same time. His sisters, one went to England, one went to the U.S. So I always had cousins who lived overseas. I have a big family in the U.S. I have family in Holland. So just growing up, I have family all over the place, and so... I kind of just assumed at some point I would <laughs> I would go overseas to either study or live. I didn't know where or when. I just kind of assumed that that was what was going to happen at some point. I asked Sophia to tell me what was her experience like studying in England? I studied in England uh, and I studied dentistry. And I have to tell that story because it's hilarious. When I was growing up here, I loved reading. I've always loved reading. And... I grew up reading, like, U.S. audience may never have heard of this author, but her name is Enid Blyton, and she writes lots of children's books and teenage books, or wrote, because this was back in the 40s, let's be be clear, this was decades ago. And she wrote about this series about girls in an English boarding school, and so they're all in the British countryside, and they're eating all these British stuff, and... I just imagined I'm going to do that one of these days. And just for context, they call Barbados Little England. So because we were would have been a colony until the 60s, we were very similar in terms of our cultures and everything to the UK. It wasn't a big like imagination for me to think about living in the UK and being in the middle of the English countryside. That's how I, <laughs> that's one of the factors that heavily influenced me going to the UK to study. In our fourth year, we had a gap period between one semester and the other, and I went to France to do French. I was in the mid, like right smack dab in the middle of France in the tiniest little village, and I was with a church camp, and it was amazing. The kids were hilarious. I'd been studying French since I was 11 at school, right the way up until I was 16, 17, and I feel like I learned more in those few couple of months being there, going to the market, going to the shops, talking to local people who are French. 
that I had learned in like the six years that I studied at school. And it was just fun. I, I was with my friend, friends from church and it was good. After Sophia graduated from university, her and her best friend went on an amazing post-graduation trip. As soon as I finished the university, my best friend who uh, studied in the U.S., she and I got on the train and we went interrailing all through Europe. That was fun. Europe, obviously, this is back then because it's, it's obviously expanded a lot. This was back in the 90s, late 90s, early 2000s. Obviously, the EU has changed a lot since then. But at the time, majority of what would have been considered in that area was Western Europe and England was not included. So you fly over to somewhere there and you have a ticket. And basically, it, this ticket allows you to travel anywhere throughout Western Europe on the train. You buy one ticket and you use it. It lasts about six weeks or it did at the time, four weeks or six weeks, uh, depending on which one you buy. And then you can just get on a train. We just went, we decided we wanted to go to Egypt first. We spent a couple of days in Cairo, see the pyramid, that type of thing. And then from there, we flew up to Greece. And then we started in Greece and we just took the train. We went through Greece. We went from the south of Italy, right up to the north of Italy. We went to Barcelona in Spain. We went to Portugal. We went to Germany, France. We then went to the Czech Republic. We did all kinds of exciting stuff. We just got on the trains and went all around. Uh, and then I returned to England for a year to work. And I then returned to Barbados because my dad was really ill. And I, I came back here after I finished working that year in England. He actually passed away a few months after that. I stayed here for another probably 18, 19 months or so. And then I moved back to England to take a different type of job which was still dentistry, but it was in the community over there. Sophia and her best friend went on another trip, and this time around the world. I asked Sophia to tell me all about it. I need to introduce you to my best friend. Her name is Renee. She lives in New Jersey. She is going to be listening to this episode, and she's going to be really annoyed that I've just outed her, but she's my best friend, and she and I always wanted to travel everywhere. She's the one that came interrailing with me. The very first time I went to Europe, I spent a weekend in Paris. She was with me there. We've gone everywhere. And we decided we wanted to take a trip around the world. It's easier to travel out to the UK. They had this round the world package and it was just like you buy a ticket. It has so many stops on it. You pick the stops. It was a lot cheaper than trying to buy individual flights. It was actually cheaper for us to buy it in the UK and for her to buy a ticket to London and fly over there to meet me. And off we went. I'd been working in the UK by that point, probably for about maybe three or four years. And we decided we were going to do it. And then we just kind of saved up for it and we did it. And it was just fun. We went to Thailand. We flew into Singapore. We went to the north of Australia, Darwin. Uh, flew down through Australia. It was pretty massive. We flew down through Australia. We stopped in Alice Springs. We visited Uluru. We then flew even further south. We did Melbourne. We did Sydney. We then spent a week in New Zealand, which, can I just say, is the most naturally beautiful place I'd ever been at that point in time. It was just amazing. We had a week in New Zealand. We hired a car, we drove around like the whole of the South Island. And then we then flew back in time, I like to call it, because <laughs> of the international dateline. We flew back in time, went to San Francisco. I'd never been to the West Coast of the U.S. before. That was really fun. We were in San Francisco for a bit, and then we eventually flew back to New York, which is where she was at the time. And I then flew back to London. That was our trip. Uh, we did it in about 20, 30 days. I had, a, I had about five weeks off from work, and she didn't have as much time off from work. So the last bit of time we were in New York, she was working. But it was too short, and it was a lot of fun. We, She and I kind of, we kind of, we used to do this, like, even when we went interrailing, it was like two to three days in a place and then we move on. Like, we, we wanted to see as much as possible. And the only way to do that, if you don't have a lot of time, is to just keep moving. <laughs> That's what we used to do for years when we traveled. We just used to keep moving, just keep moving, keep going, next place. I asked Sophia to share some of the most memorable moments of her trip around the world. There were a lot of funny moments. Uh, one thing I will say, and only because it's 
what happened then is important to me now. I started the very first trip I took, which was not with her. This is when I was a student. I went to Eastern Europe and I remember going and having a lot of fun and then not remembering much of it. And so every trip she and I took since then, we would take really good notes. And that's how I started travel writing, actually. I remember it so well because I, I literally chronicled the whole thing. To anybody who travels anywhere, you're not going to remember it, write it down. Like, that's the one big piece of advice I would give anybody. You think you're going to remember, you're not. Just write it down. Loads of interesting ha things happened. We got upgraded to first class on Cathay Pacific, which is like a really fancy airline already. And we don't even know what happened. We were walking into the airport and we were having a conversation about whether it's worth spending your money on accommodation or first class. Because first class is so expensive. And we were young working we didn't have a whole heap of money to spend and we were just on a budget and then we got to the airport and they upgraded us to business class and we were like whoa and we got champagne and we were like in our jeans and t-shirt and slippers and it was it was just such a weird <laughs> contrast to all these business people all dressed up in their finery and here you we were in our jeans and t-shirts drinking orange juice out of a champagne glass and trying not to laugh too loudly <laughs> that was hilarious and Australia. Australia was, I don't know what to say about it. Australia was an interesting place. When we arrived in the north, they have quite a big indigenous population up there. And it was kind of upsetting to me to see the contrast between the indigenous population and the, the white Australian population. That was, that was difficult for me. And I am obviously not an indigenous Australian, <laughs> but it, it was very upsetting. It was really, really upsetting to me. Um, and it's something I've never forgotten about going there, even though I've been back and I have had good times both times. I've always remembered that. And it just really bothered me a lot. New Zealand, like I said, it was just beautiful. It's just like you're standing on a beach looking at a glacier. It was just my mind was just blown up by the sheer natural beauty in New Zealand. I could not believe it. And that I, like I would go back there tomorrow if somebody handed me a ticket. I have, honestly, most of, almost all of my travel experiences, I would say, have been positive. I can't think of any negative experiences. And the one negative experience I had wasn't, wasn't even that bad. And looking back on it now, it seems pretty funny, although it was quite scary at the time. I got thrown out of a train at the German border. It's a long, boring story, but my friend went to Czech Republic and that was it was just a period of time when they had changed a visa regulation, like maybe a couple of months before. And I had gone to the Czech Republic before and I never had a problem. And this time around when I got there, there was a bunch of us that got thrown off the train and had to spend the night in a train station. And this was before cell phones, before Google, <laughs> before like SatNav, before smartphones, not even before people had cell phones. There was no social media. <laughs> Just even getting hold of my friend and sort of telling her where I was and where to meet me. It was interesting, but it was only for a couple of days and it was, it, you know, it turned out fine. And it wasn't my blackness that was the problem because there was a bunch of us that got thrown off the train and I was the only black person. All the rest were very white. Some of them were Canadian. <laughs> Some of them were from other countries and they had just changed their visa regulations. And the only place I think I felt probably intimidated with when we went to Egypt as two women traveling alone I, I wasn't comfortable my friend that I traveled with she had a, a friend from work who was there and he picked us up one day and took us driving around introduced us to a taxi driver and they drove us around and beyond that being single women alone in in Cairo in Egypt I, I didn't feel comfortable and I have a, a very good friend who's Egyptian and she was like she wouldn't either and she's Egyptian and she would always recommend go with a man. <laughs> that was probably the one place that I would say I felt uncomfortable as a woman, not necessarily being black, but just as a, a woman alone or with another woman, I didn't feel comfortable. Beyond that, I, we had a blast. <laughs> I can't say anything other than that. We had a really good time. But I, generally speaking, all my travel experiences have been amazing. I can't complain. I asked Sophia, what was her experience being a black woman in England? It was kind of eye-opening for me. I, obviously growing up in Barbados, I, I don't want to say everybody's black, but like the population is 90-something percent black. That was a familiarity for me. I'd never lived anywhere as an adult that I was as a 
say in the minority. And even though there is a black population in the UK, a lot of it is concentrated in the bigger cities, or at least it was at the time. It wasn't in London or anything like that. If London, Birmingham, Manchester, even Leicester to a certain extent has bigger populations of minorities. I was in Bristol, which still has a fairly large population, but I was in the university town side of it. And I was actually kind of in the minority. And like in my class, our dental class had 60. I was the only black person. There were some girls, a couple of guys that were Arabic. We're still really good friends. There was quite a big Indian population. And then there was a white population and a few people that were mixed. And I was in the minority from that perspective. And I think what struck me was I did meet a lot of overseas students. Like I was in the Afro-Caribbean society. I had a part-time job, so I worked in the supermarket. And I met a lot of like black international students. They came over from the Caribbean or they would have come over from parts of Africa. I didn't meet a lot of local like blacks that were from the UK who were at that university. It might have been different if I had been in London or somewhere, but where I was, there wasn't a huge population there. To me, it was just a lot of observation. And I'm I'm a I'm a writer and an observer. I just I just observed it and kind of like took it in like this is interesting. Why is there such a disparity with at least where I was and in the, the course that I was doing, and then there was even in my halls of residence, why were there not that many Black British students? Given that at the time, there were no tuition fees, there were grants, there was a lot of, more of an uh, access to tertiary education. It was just an observation for me to see that difference in the international students versus the local Black British students. So Sophia had the opportunity to live and work in Tanzania, and I asked her to tell me all about that experience. At the time, I was living in England, and I'd been there for a while. Uh, Ups and downs in the sense that a really close friend of mine had actually passed away maybe a few years after I'd moved in. He was a friend from university. He was one of my housemates when I was at university. We were really good friends, and it was it was just really sobering for me when it happened because we were like 29, 30 and you just kind of don't expect that. And I mean, and I've lost people before. i would lost both my parents by that point, but like to lose somebody in my age category was just so sobering. And I kind of, I just felt kind of lost. And whenever I felt like I needed grounding I always tend to look to see what I can do for somebody else that's just something I've always done and I really wanted to do some voluntary work I've always done voluntary work and I've done a lot when I was in the UK but I wanted to do some outside of the UK because I was just feeling like I want to do something that feels like I'm actually helping somebody and not just showy or whatever I was looking for different charities and I actually found a dental charity that was operating in Tanzania. And I I became really good friends with the the couple who ran it. And the the charity has a few different things that they do. One thing they did was they opened a clinic in the north uh, of the country in Mwanza. And that clinic, it was for local Tanzanians, but it was also for, there's a big community of international workers down there. A lot of them had basically had health insurance. So what they did was they opened a clinic there where they had locum dentists come in from either England, Australia, the US. And for the people who were there who were English speaking, it was nice to have an English speaking dentist and they would pay what they would normally pay in the US or wherever. And uh, that money then funded the charity and the charity was about training doctors and nurses in rural parts of Tanzania that didn't have any access to dentists training the doctors and the nurses to carry out basic dentistry. We would go and do training. There was a whole, like, there was loads of things that they did. And I just enjoyed their work because it's really sustainable for local Tanzanians. It doesn't just rely on people coming in. Their eventual plan was to hand it over to the locals. And they did, eventually they did. They've they've left Tanzania now. They're back in the UK. um, And they wanted to hand it over and they did. And I'm, I'm just really pleased that they had a vision of doing work somewhere and making it very sustainable and handing it over at the end in a way that was really long lasting. 
as opposed to just coming in, doing a bunch of stuff and then leaving, which I'd seen a lot of organizations do. So I wanted to work with them and I took some time off from work and I did it. And it was just an amazing experience. It just reminded me so much of Barbados in terms of the landscape. I visited Zanzibar and the beaches reminded me of Barbados. It just made me, it kind of actually made me a bit homesick. And apparently I looked Tanzanian. <laughs> I had people stopping me on the street and asking me which tribe I was from. I will say that all of the British and Europeans that I met in Tanzania were white. I was the only black volunteer worker. And apparently you don't really see black volunteer workers in these organizations. And so there were a few challenges that I had that I think I, I couldn't even explain it to the host, the family that was hosting me, which was a white British family. Like I, I had a few challenges. I was trying to explain it to them. And I don't think it, they could even understand it because obviously they didn't get have those challenges. And I think from the Tanzanian, because obviously most of the Tanzanians I met were black Tanzanians and they couldn't understand a black person, specifically a black person that they, in their mind, looked Tanzanian because they kept telling me, oh, my features were Tanzanian, like my nose and my cheekbones and all, like they were very specific and they told me exactly which tribe I came from and all these, they should be pictures. And it is shocking how similar the resemblance was. And in their mind, they couldn't understand a person who looked like them, who, who didn't speak Swahili and who wasn't Tanzanian. When I tried to explain to them where Barbados was, they had no clue. Like, they literally had no clue. They were so happy to think that there was another country that was full of Black people because in their mind, Africa was the only place in the world that was full of Black people and everywhere was white people. They were so happy to think, like, oh, there's a whole country full of Black people somewhere else. That's amazing. But they couldn't get their head around me not being Tanzanian and, and not having that connection to Africa, even though I would have originated there generations ago. And I learned that there was this thing, especially in the larger cities like Dar es Salaam, that there were some younger people who were trying to pretend to be English. And so they would speak English and they wouldn't speak Swahili. And that was a big, like, it was very frowned upon by the older generations. They were wondering, was I one of those young people who didn't want to speak Swahili? And they had a hard time just explaining to them, like, I genuinely don't speak Swahili like that. I'm not African. My saving grace was a guy that I met who had moved there from Uganda. And he didn't speak Swahili either. His first language was English. And he came over as an English teacher. And he had to teach himself Swahili. And he had that experience as well because people saw him and they couldn't understand why he couldn't speak Swahili. And he was my saving grace. He kind of took me under his wing. He taught me a, a lot of Swahili I know. He would take me to the market. He taught me how to barter for my vegetables. And he was just a really good friend who understood the challenges that I was having because I found, like I said, the, the white European uh, friends and the family that I was staying with who I'm still really good friends with up to this day. I think they just couldn't understand that issue at all. I asked Sophia if whether the politics of Tanzania or England, respectively, had affected her while she was living in either country. Well, it didn't really affect me in Tanzania. Um, it was fine. In terms of the UK, the period of time during which I lived in the UK, they opened up the EU quite significantly. The new countries started coming into the EU that hadn't previously been there. When I first lived there as a student, the EU was mostly Western Europe. And as I was there working, Poland and there are some other more Eastern bloc countries that entered the EU. And because, uh, this is my perception, I will say, but because the UK has a very open welfare system, and opportunities to work and that type of thing. And obviously it's English, lots of different factors. There was quite an influx of people from Europe, particularly Eastern Europe, into the UK. I, I was working there all that time. And it's, it caused a lot of problems, I will say. It caused a lot of problems. And one of the big hot topics to discuss at the time was immigration. Immigration was a huge, huge topic. And people were calling for 
England to leave the EU, which they ultimately did a few months ago, and that type of thing. And they were really trying to get a handle on the perceived problem of immigration. But the problem was they could not really stop people from the EU from moving to England because they were part of the EU. And what what I found they did was they became a lot stricter on non-European immigrants. All of the time that I was there, the regulations kept changing. They kept changing. They kept changing. When I eventually was going to leave, like I couldn't change jobs. I'd applied for other jobs. I applied for a job. They said that they wanted to offer it to me, but I, I applied to do it on Tuesday. They didn't have any space on Tuesday. They had it on Wednesday. That would have required a whole different work permit and they wouldn't going to apply for it. And that was it. So there were times when those changes in regulations affected me personally because I was not British. And if it had been 10 years previous, the amount of time that I spent in the UK, I would have been able to apply for British citizenship. By the time I was there, this time around, they changed those requirements. They changed those laws. I couldn't do it. Um, I, I never did. In the end, I, I got my permanent residence. But obviously, because I lived outside of the UK for so long, I gave that up. But they, they just kept changing. And they were doing it in a way, I think, politically to be shown to be doing something because people were so up in arms about immigration and they couldn't do anything about the, the people who were coming over from Europe. That was probably the biggest influence politically on me while I was there because I was working in the public health care system. When I started there, and this was actually one of the reasons that I left, when I started working there, the community care, the community dental care that we were doing, we used to do that into a lot of schools. We did a lot of school screenings. You would go to these special needs schools. There was a lot of stuff that we did. As politics and governments changed, there was more of a call to give dental access to everybody, basically, people who might be able-bodied. Because we saw in the community, we tended to see more special needs patients. We tended to see children that were in care, or we tended to see children that were unable to access or maybe at disadvantage of accessing services elsewhere. We used to have cases referred. As the government changed and things changed, they looked to increase access but what it actually happened was it actually decreased the treatments that we were doing. More people could come and be seen, but there was less that we could actually do for them. And eventually, I left because I was like, I don't want to be working somewhere. And all they can be doing is taking out teeth. Like, that's not interesting to me. That's not why I, I did this job. There have been a lot of changes over the years in terms of even with the health service, how people are paid, how they're allowed to move through the system, all kinds of changes that would have affected me because I worked in the healthcare service. And eventually, it, a combination of the work, the immigration, the everything, I decided, you know what, if I'm not going to be able to do what I came here to do, I'm going home. And I came back to our rivers. The Wedgrass scandal was and is still a scandal happening in the UK in which people of mostly Caribbean heritage who emigrated to the UK were then decades later wrongly detained, denied legal rights, threatened with deportation, and actually deported from the UK. Basically seen as non-British citizens. And now these people moved in the 1960s to help build the UK, the infrastructure, the health service, and the majority of these people came from ex-British colonies. And so it was seen definitely as a slap to the face. And so I asked Sophia, as a woman from Barbados, with family that immigrated in the 60s to the UK, how she felt about the Windrush scandal. Of course, I would have told you that when I lived in the UK, it was around the time that there was a big concern with immigration. And this the whole Windrush scandal happened after that, I should say. That it happened to me, not even after that, but in the midst of all of that, the Windrush thing occurred. And as and that, that same Windrush scandal was related to the, the same migration that I talked about with my parents and my aunts and everybody who would have gone over to the UK like in the 60s. I was disappointed because I feel like, I mean, I'm sorry, I should say the whole of the UK was built on their colonies. 
a lot of their wealth was built on their colonies. Now you give your colonies quote unquote independence. I say quote unquote, but I won't go into that right now. And you are offering these opportunities, but it's almost like, to me, it's almost like a very conditional thing. It's a very conditional thing. Like you want people to come and build your transportation system. You want them to come and build your healthcare service, but you don't feel as if you have any responsibility towards them. That the whole thing just upset me, but it also showed me like, despite everything, despite how things are in the world, because I think the whole very colonization system left a legacy on Black people that can be taken one way or the other. But I feel like it's time for us to build our own legacy and look after each other because I feel like, and, and this is throughout the world, not just in one place or another, because I feel like it is clear that nobody else is going to look after you. You have to look after yourself. And to me, it, it just made it even more important for me to feel like I want, I, especially young Black people, to start to build things for themselves. And I don't think that there's enough of that message out there. And like, it makes me want to shout it from the rooftops. Like, we have to look after you. We have to build our own businesses. I feel like there's not enough Black business being built and supported by other Black people. Like, we have to look after ourselves because otherwise... We are at the mercy of the systems which we did not make, which were made for the people who made them. I asked Sophia to compare and contrast the healthcare systems of Barbados, the UK, and Tanzania. I should warn anybody who's listening. I'm actually a healthcare nerd. I studied public health. <laughs> I was super healthcare nerd. I will try to not geek out about it. But here in Barbados, we have a mixed system. We do have a lot of public health care. We have a public hospital, and that's the main hospital here. We have public health clinics, which are all over the island. And then we have private health care as well. So we have public, private. Like I said, public is for anybody. Anybody who gets sick, call an ambulance. They'll take you to the main hospital. And yes, there's a private hospital. But even if you go to the private hospital, there are times when they will transfer you over to the main public hospital because that's the best equipped out of the two or it has more equipment than the, the two hospitals in terms of medical health in terms of dental health there are dental clinics within the clinics the community health clinics it's mostly for children and they're very limited treatment to adults there adults for the most part you ha they have to get their dental care within private health care system and then there are some private dental clinics all over the island that's how it works here it's mixed uh, public private the uk is mixed and like i said our systems a lot of our systems are roughly based on the british system for many many years the uk is mixed they have a very big national health service nhs uh, and they cover a lot of their public um, hospitals when i went there i worked in the, one of the community centers and they have private, like, clinic, like, dental clinics. They have public and private dental clinics or dentists that do public and private dentistry. And then they have private. They have, like, health insurance covered hospitals. There's one there called Bupa. They have big hospitals that are just for the people who have their insurance. And they have, like, health insurance for dentists. You can actually buy a dental policy and that will cover certain things. Or you can just pay for it outright. It's a big mixed bag of private and public. Tanzania. Tanzania, I believe, is a mix of public and private. In the bigger cities, there's better access. When I went there to work, and I can speak mostly for dental, when I went there to work, they had something like one dentist to every 500,000 people. That was the ratio that they had. And 90% of those dentists were in the main cities. What was happening was the people that lived rurally, and they had quite a big rural population, they would, some of them would have to walk for five, six days to get to the dentist. Like, they were really cut off from that. But each, a lot of the rural villages had a small health clinic, and they would have either a doctor or a healthcare worker a nursing, something like that, just, just as they would have the school, and that would be public. 
Hampshire Public Health and thought they would take care of their immediate medical needs. And the places that didn't have that for whatever reason, they had their own traditional uh, medicine people who would do, do their traditional medicine. And in terms of dentistry, the, the access out in those rural areas was, was bad. And there are people, you, would, you could die from a dental infection. Like I said, there are people who would have to get on a bicycle and ride for five days to get to the dentist. And the whole aim of the program was to, to increase access to the areas that didn't have any, but sustainable access. That was why they would train the doctors and they would give them a dental kit by the end of it so they could carry out basic extractions or whatever, and then have a referral system for people who, who were outside of that uh, scope. Seeing as Sophia is a dentist, I have to ask her, why is dentistry usually a separate cost from general health care, right? Like, why is dental health insurance usually a separate or add-on cost to general health insurance? This is something that's always bothered me. And since she's a dentist, I took the opportunity to ask her. Because dentistry is a very high-cost service. This is something that I've, I've had conversations with people, a lot of people over the year. If you want to set up a medical clinic, unless you are providing specialists like diagnosis, if you're, maybe it's oncology or something like that, but as a general medical practitioner, like you as a doctor are the biggest resource in the office, your doctor, your staff, your nurse. To set up a basic dental office is hundreds of thousands of dollars. All of the equipment is expensive. It all needs maintaining. Over the years, a lot of things have become disposable. I, recently, we were doing some calculations here, and it's like to run a dental office, it can cost upwards of $60, $100 just for somebody to walk through your door because of all the equipment that you have to maintain there. All, obviously, all your x-ray machines, all of your drills and your hand pieces and your impression material, all of the materials that are there. The chair, like the chair is ridiculously expensive. Everything requires maintenance. Everything has a cost. A lot of things, like I said, are disposable. And right now we're in the midst of the coronavirus. There's a lot more personal protective equipment to wear. And a lot of the companies that make those things, it's it's economics. You need more, they put up the prices. But it's expensive to actually, and dentists are at a very high risk for disease transmittable diseases, dentist hygienists and dental nurses. They do a lot of protection, a lot of disinfection. That's just pretty standard for a dental office. And there are a lot of costs there. And for a lot of places, the cost of running a dental office, you need to have, the money has to come from somewhere. Even in the UK, where you can go to the public NHS doctor for free, If you went to the NHS dentist, there was a charge. It was a minimal charge. And if you were a child or if you fell into certain brackets in society, you could claim an exemption. But other than that, there were charges. They had to charge because there was no other way to keep the system going because it was expensive. I asked Sophia, what was her journey into writing? Writing, as I always tell people, I've always wanted to be a writer. But for me, writing and traveling have always been one, or they were up until I started this blog. As I told you, when I was younger, I loved writing, but I loved reading. And like I said, reading, reading was the thing that was my travel when I was a child and when I was a teenager, because we didn't really go anywhere. As my mom passed away, we didn't really do a lot of traveling. It was a little bit difficult. For me, my trips were in the pages of these books. Reading was my traveling. So I was like, I traveled to Narnia and I traveled to the British boarding schools and to outer space and everywhere. Everywhere I traveled, I traveled through the pages of these books. And they were obviously mostly fiction. And it was just, I loved reading. I still love reading now. To this day, reading is still the thing that transports me. And I always wanted to write and I always wanted to write a novel. I always imagined writing this big, exciting, juicy, long novel that was just twists and turns and all these things. And I always thought I was going to write that. And I, I tried several times and I didn't. But in between there, I would write other things. I've always loved the written word. I write poetry. I write anything. When I started to travel, as I said, what happened was that I realized how quickly I forgot things. And I started writing these long epic emails to 
my sisters, my friends back in Barbados, my, my friend who was in the US, my, and I would just write about my trips. And it gave me a love for writing about real life. Like I'd always loved writing fiction, but that gave me a love for like real life writing, which I never thought I would like. And that is how I kind of got into things about starting travel writing and starting my blog and that type of thing. And at the time, it was just personal. It was just for my friends and my family and my emails. It was never for real people, as I like to call them. It was never for public consumption. When I was about to turn 40, I finally decided to start this blog and it was life lessons. It was supposed to be 39 lessons I learned before I turned 40. Now, I should say I'm 42. I'm about to turn 43. I still write life lessons. I've been doing it all that time. And going through the process of writing the blog, I decided to try again to write a book. I tried several times. It hadn't happened. But going through that blogging process gave me the confidence to write a book. So I did. And I published it. It's on Amazon. And then I wrote a novel. That's on my website. And I just realized how much I love writing how much I love exploring ideas and people through writing and places, right? Places that people and ideas just through the written word and connecting. Like you can connect so much with people through your writing. What would happen is people would say to me like, oh my gosh, you're so brave. I, I, could, never, I could never write a blog and put it out there. And a combination of my background, of my traveling, my reading, my writing, all of the things that I learned, I got this real sense that people need to tell the stories of the places that they are. They need to tell their own stories, tell the stories of their communities. Like people, we need people to do that. Otherwise, in a hundred years time, what's left is going to be the story told from one person's perspective. And that might be an academic person who was at university and their only job was to write a history book. And I know some of those people and they're great people, but they have one lens of the world. And I just started to feel like, I honestly feel like we, and I say we, I mean we as women, we as black women, we as Caribbean or American or whoever, we need to tell our stories. Otherwise, no one's going to know, right? And that's why I love this podcast. I love the idea of telling these stories that people might not otherwise hear or know, because I think about the impact that the stories that I read had on me. And I feel like we need more people to, to have that impact. And that is what made me decide to help people to write. But I love coaching people around, not just writing, but like getting visible. For me, a big part of getting visible was writing, was blogging, was the book, but it was modeling. It was some of the organizations that I'd worked with. It was the traveling that I'd done. And just the power of having good people visible. I want good people to write their story and get visible. That's like one of my mission in life. I asked Sophia for some advice for people who may be interested in starting a writing career or at least interested in starting a blog. I would advise them to write. Start writing. For me, when I started writing, I wasn't, I wasn't even publishing. I was emailing it to people. But the key is to start writing and to start start developing your voice and figuring out your own writing style. There's a, I'm going to call it a misconception. There's a misconception out there that writing and writing a blog looks a certain way, which is exactly the reason why I feel like we all need to be writing our own stories because there's too much out there of this, this is the one way to do it, this is the one way to do it. I, I would say write. Figure out, figure out how you write best. Figure out what you enjoy writing about. The only way I figured out what I enjoyed writing about was actually writing. It never occurred to me that I would write nonfiction. Like, <laughs> it just never even occurred to me. I always thought I was going to be writing about dragons and elves and <laughs> all those things. It never occurred to me that I was going to be writing about South Africa, Tanzania, and places that I went. I, I honestly thought I would be writing about fictional characters. I learned that through writing. So my thing is always to start writing. If you have five ideas, if you have 10 ideas, write about all of them. You might discover you might like a topic, but you don't want to write about it. 
And the only way to find that out is to actually try. I'm all about the doing. I'm all about getting in there. I, I always say, right, like nobody's looking over your shoulder because probably nobody is. And if they are, you have a different problem. Just start writing and see what catches your excitement. See what really, like you're writing about it and you're like, ooh, I like that. Go in that direction. Follow your curiosity. Just write and, and see where it takes you. And it may take you in a million different directions and that's okay too. If, you, if you're uh, somebody who enjoys writing about things that people want to read about, there is a lot of opportunity in both monetizing your blogs, but also designing programs around that. This goes into what might be called content marketing. If you Googled it, you might want to Google content marketing. And it's basically using your content to build a form of income. And it could be a podcast. It could be a blog. It could be a YouTube channel. It doesn't need to be the written word, but it needs to be a way of connecting with your audience, finding out what they're interested in, what they want to hear more about, what they want to learn more about, and then kind of catering to that need and then finding somebody to pay you. That somebody might be an advertiser, but it might be another company who has those products, or it might be the very reader themselves who want to learn more from you, who want to maybe sponsor you on Patreon or buy your product, buy your course or program or whatever. It's like, find that thing you want to write about, figure out how to connect with your audience through it. Is it going to be a blog, but is it going to be a podcast or is it going to be a YouTube channel? Um, and then make sure you can connect with that audience. And there's a lot of tech, boring tech stuff that goes into that SEO and all that boring stuff. Learn about it so that you can have a wider reach with your work. And then through that reach, you will then be able to monetize it, like I said, either through um, an external person, an advertiser, or through the very people that you've reached out to who want to learn more from you. Sophia is a published author, and I asked her to tell us a little bit more about her books. I wrote a nonfiction book, and it's called Everything is a Thing, My Journey to Living a Truly Authentic Life, and it was based on my life lessons. And what that book is about, how finding your values, how I found my values, how I live more from that perspective, and how it made my relationships better. It's one, that's the first book I wrote and self-published. The second one I did write and I did distribute, so I guess it's published, but it's not on Amazon. It's available on my website and it's called Lessons in Love. And despite being somebody who hasn't done much dating or has been single for most of the time, I'm totally fascinated by the idea of love, like just totally fascinated by it. And I wrote this book called Lessons in Love, and it was basically about a girl whose best friend got married, moved halfway around the world. Then this girl's kind of like building her own life and her own relationships, and it's told through her emails and her letters between her and her best friend and other people. Because all the years that I was living in England and my best friend was living in New York, our whole life was told through emails. I wanted to kind of recreate that experience. That is actually what that book is about, Lessons in Love. And I did write a book, which I have not published, and it is about well-being, actually. But it's really about wellness for dentists, because dentists have a really high incidence of poor mental health, depression. And having had some of those issues myself, I wanted to talk about what worked for me. And I wrote about well-being, and it is about those 12 aspects of your life, which are uh, not just career, but like physical wellness, education, creativity, diet, relationships, spirituality, finances, like all of the areas that feed into your life and just ideas and tips to kind of manage those things that you can bring that idea back up into better health. I asked Sophia, what is her definition of wellness and how had living abroad influenced that definition of wellness? My personal definition of wellness is really about in order to be fully well, you do have to have physical wellness. You have to have good mental health. You want to have good relationships. You want to have good finances, uh, good financial management, a career, creativity, education. There are so many things I think that feed into wellness. The thing that I think is the biggest piece of it is that the thing that you pay the least amount of attention to there's a risk of that thing 
holding everything else back. I always call it the rate limiting step, which is a nerdy thing that I learned in chemistry. But it's like that thing that you pay the least amount of attention to is the thing I think that can limit your wellness. If you pay a lot of attention to your financial wellness and you're not getting any sleep, then you're not fully going to be well. If you're paying a lot of attention to your exercise, physical eating, wellness, but you, you know, have a career that's exhausting you or a relationship that is really not good for your mental health, you're never going to be fully well. To me, the key is to find the thing where you're putting in the least amount of energy and try to support that thing the most. And it could be your mental health. So if you're focusing on everything else and you're ignoring your mental health, take some time to focus on that and, and try to bring all areas of your life into being well. Thank you so much, Sophia, for sharing your wonderful story. And although we did disagree on whether Trinidad Carnival or Crop Over in Barbados, which one was the better event, which I'm still holding out on Trinidad, we had an amazing, amazing discussion. So thank you so much, Sophia. And if you want to stay connected to Sophia, you can. My blog uh, and my website right now is www.39andcounting.com and it's digits39andcounting.com. If you have eyes and you love to read, come read. If you are thinking about writing, just come and join me. I love to write about writing and I love helping people to get their voice out there as a writer. And I also, because I love podcasting, started recording some of my blog posts. If you want something to listen to while you're cooking, come on down to the website and find some stuff. I'm on Facebook. You can find my official Sophia Robinson author coach page. You can like me over there. I'm on Instagram at Sophia Robinson 76. So, and I have a podcast that only has one season so far and it is called Big Lessons from a Small Island. And you can hear some of my posts there as well. Thank you all so much for listening to the podcast this week. I really hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Definitely make sure you are following the podcast via Instagram because that is where I post a lot of the announcements that happen for the podcast. It's where I go live by myself or with guests. And I will be going live this Thursday and on Sunday. This Thursday, I'm going to be talking about how to get a job abroad. We're going to be talking about whatever questions you have about either starting a business abroad or how to land a job abroad. I think I want to do it as a series. So definitely stop by Instagram and let's chat. Let's have a discussion. Bring your questions. I mean, if you have something to say, maybe you'll go live with me. Who knows? Definitely make sure you are following Flourish in the Foreign on Instagram at Flourish Foreign. And if you are ready to take your skills and your expertise abroad, if you want to leverage your talents and your expertise into a viable and sustainable online business so that you can pursue a thriving life abroad, get at me. Get at me. I have my signature 12-week sprint that is open right now, but I will be closing it at the end of the month or sooner, depending. So if you're ready, if you want to start the new year, not just with a wish and a hope and new year, new me kind of stuff. If you actually want to start the new year with a game plan and with a business and really be out, definitely hit me up. Check out my website at www.christinejobe.com. And if you are thinking about starting a podcast, or maybe you've already started one and you're feeling like, what do I do? What What is there all to do? Because it's overwhelming. I highly recommend you check out the WOC Insiders Podcaster membership program. I am a member of this membership. And let me tell you, 
They have so many amazing resources to help you get started, to help you monetize your podcast for you to increase the reach of your podcast. So if you're interested in really taking your podcasting seriously, I definitely recommend joining the WOC Insiders Podcasters membership. Please use the link on the Flourish in the Foreign website or any of the bios across all of our social media channels. It is an affiliate link, but it's at no extra cost to you. And it's just another way to support this year podcast. Thank you again to Zachary Higgs, who produced the music of this podcast. If you are looking to have music created for your podcast or your next project, definitely hit him up. I'll leave all of his information in the show notes. All right, that is it for this week. Have a fantastic week, no matter what. All right, y'all. Take care of yourselves every single day and every single week, but especially this week. Take care of yourself. All is well. We will get through no matter what. All right? All right. See you next week. On the next episode of Flourish in the Foreign. There was this really funny YouTube series years ago that detailed Ghanaian diaspora moving back to Ghana. And I will never forget them going house hunting. And this house is $4,000 a month. And they were like, what? (laughs) I think they had moved from New York City or something. And so they were expecting, oh, it's going to be cheap if I go back to the continent. And they're like, no, this this place is $4,000 a month. And they're like but the power is not gonna be reliable. And they're like, nah. So if you want it, it's that. And so I think also you have to recognize that this is a very wealthy continent, wealthy in its people, wealthy in the resources and the intelligence and the brilliance of the people that inhabit the continent. And so if you wanna be a part of that, you are most welcome. We welcome you. 